Welcome to Kachika, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes at the Dundas Center for the Performing Arts. Kachika is a production of Ringplay Productions. In this episode, we're talking with Joanne Callender, who should need no introduction if you know anything at all about Bahamian performance and music. But she is our foremost soprano. She has sung all over the world. And you may not know this, she has been friends with Philip A. Burroughs for a little while. She <laughs> knew him before I met him. So welcome, Joanne. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with both of you. It's an honor. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you so much. Okay, so I'm going to start with Mr. Vo. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Joanne, what's yeah. your earliest memory of singing? Uh, my mom said my first notes were when I was two years old. I actually composed a song and I kept humming this song around the house. She bought one of those tape recorders with the mic, the little old ones with the mic. And as soon as she bought it and ran behind me trying to record my song, I stopped singing it. I remember it was my twin and I, uh, Lynn DeVoe, she sang with me on stage for the first time. And I remember looking into her eyes. She had a mole in her right eye. And I focused on that mole. And we sang when Mothers of Salem that got faster with each verse. It, it had about 100 verses. And <laughs> I will never forget it. I wasn't nervous because she was right there with me. And mommy was was um, at the piano and everything felt very normal. And Philip, it's like it happened yesterday. That's how well I remember. You know, it was just easy and really, really a lot of fun. And um, after that, Lynn, well, Lynn stopped singing. She didn't want to be a part of it at all because it was a lot of rehearsals. But um, after that, I kept singing. And I remember being on stage and mommy at the piano and it felt like home. You know, I was going to bring Lynn up later on because a lot of people have no idea. You have a twin sister. I know. And, and, and while we're dealing with the family thing, I'm going to get back to singing and whatever. I would be totally off base if I didn't talk about Bernita DeVoe. I know. <laughs> now, because I got to know her. This is Joanne's mother. And um, Bernita's brother, you tell him who Bernita's brother was. Well, they used to call him God Bless, but his name uh -huh. was uh, George Moxie. And George Moxie's son? Uh, Edmund Moxie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this is sort of like the family, this is sort of like the family aspect going on because pretty soon we'll bring Kayla into the, into the mix. Who, who happens Ed to be Edmund's sister. Sister, exactly. So yeah, so, um, so Lynn, yes, Lynn... A lot of people don't know Lynn exists. A lot of people don't know anything about Lynn because Lynn is not a singer. And um, But people should know that Joanne actually has a twin sister. Now, when I say twin sister, please don't think that there's another person who looks like Joanne out there. Because <laughs> Joanne know. and Lynn don't look anything alike. No. They, they look nothing alike. But let's move on to Bernita because this woman, I, I'm not only thinking about you, but I'm thinking about Jody and Gina and how she was the person who was influencing all of your lives. Yes. Talk a little bit about her. Well, my mother, Bonita DeVoe, um, she was Bonita Moxie DeVoe, where George Moxie, Edmund Moxie, where that comes in. Mm -hmm. And the Ragged Island clan, 
from I can remember my mother, she was at the piano playing or she was between cooking something for us and choosing music for the cantata for church or Christmas or church anniversary or something else that was happening. Mommy was, she was a music teacher. She got her first job from Timothy Gibson. He was responsible for that job as a music teacher to at Southern Junior Primary, which became William Gordon. She was also the pianist for Timothy Gibson's band. And he was very fond of her because he, he felt not only was her touch very beautiful on the piano, she really knew her music well, and she really did well when children were around. And he said, I want you for a music teacher in one of our government schools. And he gave her her first job and she stayed at that school. She just moved over the yard to William Gordon. She was there 33 years. During that time, mommy taught a whole lot of people. She um, taught piano, She, you know, all the instruments that kids play at school. She would teach that. She had a gazillion choirs, which she entered in every festival every year for a, lots of classes in the music festival. It was a big thing. She entered those choirs. She entered the church choirs that she was in charge of, and she entered me as well. And, well, let me you know, let me ask you this question because I, my my later recollections. I mean, I, of course, people don't know. We'll talk a little bit about our relationship, but you know, when I yes. used to come to the house, but. I, I remember adjudicating drama festival mm-hmm. and this is when Gina was performing. Ah, now, yes. Gina, Gina is, Gina is Lynn's daughter, your niece, but Gina was yes. performing and Bernita was always there. So yes. I'm going to assume that when you entered festival, she was always there as well. Oh, she was always there at the piano. She prepared me and you know, mom was always about interpreting the words and what the music was telling you as a singer. We had our rehearsal on Thursday nights because we grew up seven dead fetish. She stayed in the church until the very bitter end. She had a group in Florida at the very bitter end when she was almost 90. We'll go back to that. She prepared Gina for all of the dramas that she did. Gina also was at the Dundas, but you'll talk about that. And then Mummy also entered the festival in, what was it, poetry, spoken word, something. But she was always doing poetry. In um, one year she did, oh, I can't remember the name of the piece, and we always laugh about it from then until now. Some, something about my lifeless mass, a, laughle- a lifeless weight upon the mattress. Small. Oh, I'm tired now. How tired am I? And we, she practiced that, and she... She, of course, won her class, but Mm -hmm. mommy was always involved with music and drama and the kids at school and anybody that had one ounce of talent. Speaking of festival now, I want you to tell us, tell the story about the tie. You talked about when I came tie with Jane Eyre, festival time, you actually, they would put a strip of paper in something, shake it up on which whoever got the longest one was last. I think you got the choice to go last and the shortest one went first and all of that. Anyway, Jane sang the song. She was nervous. I sang the song and I took a breath the same place. She took a breath. And because she sang well and I sang well, the adjudicator who was from London, um, I think Mrs. Margridge, she told us to go back on stage one at a time and she asked us to sing the first part of the song again. 
And so, of course, by that time, you know, we're sweating because we're nervous about this. We don't know what's wrong, what's up and all of that. And so she sang. She took the breath the same place again. Then I went up singing. I sang the same place again. And so she, you know, she was just laughing in the back. She didn't know what to do. So she asked us to go up one more time. I went up then and she asked us to sing that particular phrase, that line of music. And um, because we just took the breath where we were taught to take the breath um, in spite of the fear, she couldn't separate us. And she said for the first time ever, she will has to tie the winner. And we shared the trophy. She she had it six months and I had it six months and our both our names were on it. It was a, it was just so funny. And I actually out of all the photos that I've taken of childhood, I have a photo of where Mrs. Folks presented me with the trophy of when we came tied. I have a picture of both of us with that. It's it's a wonderful memory of festival. And back then, when you came to festival, you couldn't talk. The room was like going into the throne room of royalty. You could not talk. You couldn't move your chair hardly. You could, um, we lined up outside and we came in quietly and sat down. And it wasn't until it was our turn, we went on stage. It was, it was a reverence in festival that was so special and so refreshing and it made you feel when you won you knew you won something very very special i'll never forget it was a part of my childhood that uh, actually makes me who i am today and some of the songs i learned back then like cherry ripe and all those songs is so funny that i remember them today and when i see them on youtube not a lot of people know them there are just a few performers on youtube and it brings back great joy of those english songs in particular so so did you do a lot of singing then when you were when you were growing up growing up in the um seven day adventist school because we're moving now into that whole period of your life um in, in junior and secondary and high school uh, years and so you you went to um... Bahamas Academy on Wolf Road because they were church based on Wednesdays I think it was was chapel and I sang very often on Wednesdays the funny part about that is that uh, I sang and the kids used to giggle and laugh at me because I had a more operatic voice. I didn't have like a regular gospel voice, so I wouldn't sing a gospel song. Of course, mom would prepare me. And most times when I I sang in chapel, she would come right up the road because she was on Wolf Road at William Gordon as well. And she would just come right up. She would play for me in chapel and then she'd go back to school and I would be there. And the the kids would laugh. They would make fun of me. they were, hey, what they call bullying now. But back then it was like, you know, it's so innocent back then, even though they, they used to call me Santa Claus and fatty and pluggy because I was not really slim. My twin was taller than I, and I thought she was more beautiful than I. And she had really nice curly hair and she was slim. And all I ever wanted to be growing up, especially going to school and having to sing in front of all those kids, my peers, my um, schoolmates, was to be beautiful and thin and um, be able to hide or fit in. And um, didn't quite happen, but uh, those years were very interesting. And then I went to high school in Massachusetts in a place called Pioneer Valley Academy up in the mountains in New Braintree. Even there, I, of course, when I auditioned for the choir, 
the choir master chose me right away to be one of the soloists. And I was a soloist for the regular choir, the mass choir, which was 106 members of the, of the school. I was one of the soloists for the traveling choir. And so because of a vocal gift that I was given, I got to be soloist and we traveled at least two weekends a month. We would go to the neighboring New England states. And I was just telling somebody, I want to go back to Vermont so badly because back then it was beautiful. And I remember singing for every possible occasion in the school choir, as well as in the traveling choir, and um, traveling to beautiful places and watching the seasons change and all of that. It was just a delight of my heart during the two and a half years that I was there. It was, it was beautiful. It was something I would love to go back and see again. And I saw snow for the first time and it was interesting experience. So I would assume that, that coming out of high school, shortly after coming out of high school, and being back would be the time when you got involved with chamber singers. Yes, I came out, I graduated in 1973. Not saying how old I am or anything, mm -hmm. okay. And uh, I don't know about you, but I just came out of my teens. We're gonna work with that. <laughs> yeah. And um, <laughs> we could pretend, right? We could do anything, it's 2020. So, <laughs> I know. So in, I saw Kayla for the first time in 72. Uh, I met her again. Let me say that because my mother and Kayla's mother were best friends when we were growing up. And that's how I became close with Kayla. And I adored Kayla. I wanted to be a second Kayla, quite frankly, because you know what I admired most about her? She could tell a story through song. She, she interpreted the song. She um, her notes and her singing was so warm and you felt her heart when she sang. And I always wanted to do that. I wanted to be able to be received and open people's hearts as much as she did for us. And um, so when I came from school, I saw her at a concert in 72, a Christmas concert. And mom said to her, well, Joanne is graduating in next year, June. So she'll be coming home and she says, oh, you have to be a soprano in my choir. I just formed a choir. It's just a few months old by then. She says, and I want you to be one of my sopranos. It's called the Chamber Singers. And so I was happy because, you know, it gave me something to look forward to coming out of school, not really being in touch anymore with the church and with choirs and stuff because I was away for two and a half years. When I came home, it was 73. I, I think I came home one week and the next week I was at choir rehearsal with chamber singers. And it was actually, it must have been just before that. I graduated in 72, I think, because I remember getting ready for independence rehearsal. This is where you and I first crossed paths. Yes. Because 1973, Kayla was conducting the choir that sang at Independence. Yes. And so the choir, the choir consisted of the boys from Aquinas who had won the National Arts Festival, <laughs> and the girls, and the girls from Government High who had won the National Arts Festival in their class. And of course, since Kayla was conducting the choir, members of the chamber singers. And so that would have been the first because I didn't join. I joined chamber singers in 1974. And it was shortly uh -huh. after after you guys came back from Fisk University concert. I was actually a voice student of Kayla's. 
my brother Derek had decided that I was one. I was the singer in the family, and he said he would pay for me to go wow. to voice lessons. And so I went to voice lessons. This is when Kayla was living in Fox Hill. Wow. And um, I went to voice lessons. And during that time, they moved from Fox Hill to Decasilla in Shirley Park Avenue. Uh-huh. And then she said to me, well, I want you to join the choir. And uh, that's how you and I started to uh, sing together, work together. And yeah. I was thinking the other night, I was thinking the other night because, I mean, this is much later on, because I was thinking about my poor parents <laughs> because they had a piano. Yes. And at two o'clock in the morning, <laughs> up until maybe three o'clock in the morning, we would be in the front room and they would be down the hall in their bedrooms and we would be singing. And I'm not talking about singing by quietly. This time, by, by this time, Mr. Callender is in the picture, but we'll deal with him at another him. point. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so so but I, I just was thinking about that the other night. I was like, boy, I don't I don't know how they didn't like come out and say, shut up. We, we must I have found it good or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know something, Philip, now that you now that you mention it, it takes me right back there where they were down the hall. They were not far from the piano at all, and they never no. ever said anything. Not a word, not a word, oh because God. either it was either there or in Timothy Gibson's uh, That's room. That's right, in the front. Uh, where in the front where we would mm -hmm. where we would perform as well. But one of the things you mentioned about, you know, wanting to be you were you were actually Kayla Junior. I'm sure. <laughs> because if we were in rehearsal, and let's say we were doing Ride the Chariot, one of uh -huh. the chamber singers, one of the chamber singers' staple songs. Very much so. Kayla would say, Joanne, sing it. Because Kayla was normally the person who would sing the lead. Yes. And so it was always, well, at this particular time, Joanne. Now, when that group started, wasn't it mostly a seventh-day group? Actually, yeah, most of the members, because, you know, Seventh-day Adventist people had the reputation of being able to sing very well, and that it was quite true. Uh, they were very serious about their music, and I don't know for whatever reason. Um, today, they have great singers in, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church as well, still. And um, they really put a lot of work into their rehearsals and the vocal, you know, having good vocal control and, and good vocal tones and all of that. And so she started where she knew because Kayla was a Seventh-day Adventist. She came right. out of that church as well. Well, that didn't really last that long because by the time as I joined the singers in 74, James and Chris were Catholics. Yes. Barry and Max were Methodists. Yes. Pat Bazard was a Baptist. He's Baptist, <laughs> that's right. You're listening to Kachika a podcast that takes you behind the scenes at the Dundas Center for the Performing Arts. Talk about some of the actual training that you did. I decided I wanted to go off. I didn't want to do opera. I was never really interested in opera because I always like not only a language that I can understand and other people can understand, but I always thought that the stories were so corny and they were so old and I always liked music that was current and new. And I loved when people would write stuff and ask me to sing it. That was always just a joy of, of my heart. I always liked being a recitalist, which means I can sing many songs from many composers in one performance. And I could put on, as it were, I could be different characters. 
because each song has a character, a personality, and I can take on all of those personalities during one con um, concert, which could last for from an hour to an hour and 15, 20 minutes. And so I preferred that because it was current, it was new, it was me. And um, so when I went, I applied to Peabody Conservatory of Music, and I went off in Madame Alice Dushak, from what I remember. She came to the Bahamas and had a friend here and she told him, she called him and she said, there's a Bahamian that auditioned for the school. I want to teach her, tell her to ask for me. And so that is what I did. And when I got to Peabody, uh, I realized in the first lesson, she was about, she had to have been about 80 years old. Uh, she was, she was talking about interpretation. And I kept saying to her, I, I came here for technique. I need to know how to support my sound more and X, Y, and Z. And she just said, I will get my technique in my songs. And she talked about, hey, she had a wig on her head, which was so funny. Uh, she had this wig that kept falling back and she would hold the wig on her head and she would say, sing Strauss, you have to sing Strauss. She was from Austria and she was well known as a matter of fact. She, she taught Jesse Norman and she taught uh, Veronica Tyler, Dr. Veronica Tyler, who mm -hmm. after hearing about me and he some of the frustrations that I was going through with her, not actually giving me what I came for. And um, I guess people were suggesting maybe another teacher and she called me. And uh, do I talk about the diva? Sure. Okay. Uh, one night I was in my room and my roommate was a violinist from Colombia. Okay. She was magnificent. And um, I would teach her English and we would just talk and chat in the night. So I, I got this message that there's a very important phone call for me. And uh, I said, I thought of home right away and Jody and the whole nine yards. And so I went um, downstairs and took the call and it was this Dr. Veronica Tylo. It was her, her assistant um, who wanted to speak with me. And I spoke with him and he said, well, Dr. Tyler has heard about you and he, she would like to come to the university. She'll be there X, Y, and Z. And she'd like to talk with you. And his name was Richard. And so I said, sure, uh, um, that's fine. And I think a couple nights later, she came downstairs under the cover of darkness. And um, <laughs> I know this was top secret, okay, because Dr. Uh, my teacher couldn't find out. And there was another teacher in school who wanted to teach me anyway. And so we had to keep this hush hush. So I walked in the room, he, he escorted me in the room. I walked in the room and there's this, this diva, a black lady, beautiful, tall, slim, and most dramatically dressed. And um, I was invited to sit and I said, hi. And she said, I've heard that X, Y, and Z, and um, I've heard your voice. And um, I don't know how she heard it, but you know, people get things around when you do recordings, because I had to do a recording to audition for school. And so she said, during the summer, I take on four students. And this year I would like for you to be one of those students. Here is what we do. You move into my condo, which was in the city in Baltimore, Maryland. And she lived outside the city. And so we would stay in the, in the condo. We would rehearse during the week. And on Saturday she came in and she would teach us. We would learn technique about three hours in the morning. And then in the afternoon, we had a lunch break. And in the afternoon, she'd invite just a few friends to come and we would sing our repertoire um, 
putting the principles that we had just learned in the morning into effect in the repertoire while still performing. And I'll tell you, it was my voice went from choir boy status. The volume was like a choir boy, very pure, light. It, yeah, it was light even from childhood. And I had a very high top. I remember singing top A's and um, I'm not sure about the B's, but I had a very high top. And so it went from this small voice and she more or less, I think more than doubled the size of my voice. And mm -hmm. the techniques that she taught me and the way she explained and nobody had ever said those things to me before. And um, she, was a, she was a genius when it came to a teacher and her voice is just absolutely so amazing. Uh, her, you know, her vocal ability, were, you can't even think about it. It was so fabulous. And um, she opened some doors. She was, you know, I auditioned for Porgy and Bess that was going on tour through Europe. And um, I decided not to actually take advantage of that because of, you know, a few things that had transpired and um, all of that. But, you know, she knew people and um, she was she was an excellent teacher for me. She was exactly what I needed at the time. Still use that technique. I have added some things to it but I still use it today. And I work with my singers at, at the University of the Bahamas. I teach them a form of that as well. And it's working for them as well. Well, you know, speaking of auditioning, because one of the things, again, that ties you and Kayla, I remember you coming to New York when I was a student. <laughs> and you came, you came up to audition. Yes. And the funny thing about it is a number of years later, Kayla came up to audition for the same role. Wow, yes. Oh, my gosh. Oh. And so it was you. I remember you sitting in my apartment and sitting on the floor yeah. <laughs> and blasting out these notes. And my roommate was just like, I can't believe that's coming out of this person. <laughs> Jimmy, yes. And, uh, Jimmy, exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, and it was a number of years later when, um, as a matter of fact, it was when Kayla actually asked me to come home. Ah. I went, my brother David was visiting me and we went to see Kayla. Um, she was living in an apartment on Central Park West. And she said, you know, the chamber singers are having a 20th anniversary and we're performing in the uh, cabaret and we want you to come and be a special guest. And of course, that was the time when you guys were also working on the Perry Como special. Oh my gosh. I just saw, told somebody about that recently. Go ahead. Oh my. During all of this, you've had the opportunity to travel. And I know you and I, we've traveled together yeah. in a number of things. One of my, one of the stories, which is, which it, but doesn't really reflect very nicely on either of us. <laughs> I know. <laughs> was we were in Jamaica. Yeah. You know what I'm going to say? Yes, right? I do. We, <sighs> were, we were in Jamaica <laughs> and we were performing in Sablama. Savannah Lamar. You have and a so great memory. Take, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> we had to take this bus ride. Um, and we overnighted in Montego Bay, but we had to take this bus ride from Kingston all the way to Sav Lamar. So it was a long ride. Yes. Now, the thing about it was, Joanne and I both speak sign language. <laughs> you taught me. All right. So we sat on the bus with people sitting around us well, and next around to us. us. We talked about them. Oh my 
while they were sitting next to us. I know. <laughs> Nico, it was not something just, I'm proud of, okay? I'm just, no, no, no. But we I'm had, listening. I know. <laughs> oh, my We just had these long conversations about people sitting right next to us. I know. We just sat there having this conversation. It was a, it was a, it was at least a, must have been a two-hour drive or something. Yeah. For us to get there because it was a Carafesta in Jamaica. This would have been 1976. Yeah. And um, well, before that, in 75, we had done the Florida International University, Howard University, and Columbia and the United Nations tour. Ah, uh, yes. Where Clement was with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that was the night we performed with Tony McKay in uh, at Columbia. Yeah. We performed with him at the United Nations, didn't we, as well? No, he, the United Nations was a very, very small performance. As a matter of fact, the dressing room was... A sheet. Uh, it was a sheet. A, a very, very, very small, exactly. Yeah. And um, Lawrence Carroll and Edna Wright had come down from Canada because they were in school at the time. And um, Alfred Sayers was actually the student, the Bahamian student um, body leader at Columbia. Uh-huh. And... I remember the night quite well because Elisha Obed won the title. Yes. And it took Tony McKay and those for ages to set up. Clement was there because Clement joined us. Clement didn't join us until Washington. He wasn't with us when we performed at um, Florida International. But he joined us in Washington and he, I remember us rehearsing on the bus as we were driving through Washington, going to visit different museums and stuff. Yeah, the best. But it was... there was a lot of travel and outside of what we did, you've been all over Europe. Um, tell us some of those things because we can get into the whole business with you working with Franz Hepburn and everything. But tell us some of those uh, trips that you did uh, as it relates to international travel. Well, we, we have to connect Lee at um, which point was it? Yes. 1971. All right, we'll get to that. Let me let me let's deal with Lee right now, okay? Yeah, because then Lee connects. <laughs> let, with Lee connects I'll, with I'll, Europe. All right, but let me let's let me, just let me deal, deal with Lee. Let's deal with yeah, Lee. All right, because watch. because this is this is how this goes. Joanne was my closest <laughs> friend. Yes. Lee was Lee was a good friend of mine. Joanne and Lee couldn't stand each other. Oh, Philip. Hey, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, no, you don't remember the you. first night we met Lee. The first night, actually, Kayla had asked me if I would go and pick Lee up to come to a rehearsal at uh, her house. Okay. And I did not know where Dean's Lane was. Okay. So Lauren Major, who was another Methodist, uh-huh. who was in the choir. Yeah. Lauren and I got in my car and we drove and picked Lee up to come to. Chamber Singers rehearsal, and that is how I started to be the person to take to pick Lee up and take him around. But the problem was, Lee wanted to sit in the front seat, <laughs> and Joanne owned <laughs> the front seat. Yeah. So wait, Philip. Sorry, back. Why were you picking Lee up? What was the whole story there? What happened was Lee had just come back from Barbados. Yes. Lee, Lee didn't know anybody. Lee knew Kayla. Yes. And we just happened to be at rehearsal and. Kayla said, Kayla was on the phone and she was speaking to Lee and she said, why don't you come by the house? And Lee said, well, I don't have any way to get there. 
And Kayla said, Philip, can you go and pick Lee up? Kayla had told us that when she went over to do a concert, she met Timothy Gibson's grandson, who was a fantastic pianist, mm, that they, they were looking to come home. And she was hoping to get him to work with the group because he was such a wonderful pianist. And that's how it all started when he came home and he contacted her. Go ahead. Right. I picked him up. And because I picked him up, I dropped him home. And of course, I dropped Joanne home every night as well. Yes. And I think from the very first night, Joanne was like, excuse me, boy, where you going? That's my seat. <laughs> I had this little Morris mini. Tiny. That <laughs> the three of us, that the three of us traveled in for a number of years. Yes. But it wasn't, it wasn't that they hated each other. It was just that, you know, there was, there was sort of like a, a battle for me. I, if I if I may be so bold, yes, um, for your fr- <laughs> for your friendship and your attention, because you were my friend longer, and we were very right. close. We did everything together. We attended every concert. We performed together. Try uh, everything. And so, like, where was he, Jay? What is it, JCL, Johnny Cumberlandly, trying to put me in the back seat so he could sit in the front? Right. I fill up my best friend. I don't think. <laughs> I, well, <laughs> I, Nico, if you know, I was most offended. So anyway, the, sto- the other the other story that kind of bound us together are the three of us. And when I talked earlier about um, playing the piano in my parents' house, it was Lee who was playing. Yes, there and we- normally Joanne and I, jo- Joanne and I, were singing from. The Star is Born songbook. Uh-huh. Wow. And, um, <laughs> and so Lee, Lee was always the accompanist. Always. The night that really sticks out to me is Shirley Hall Bass, who Ricardo and I talked about, and Nico and I talked about when Ricardo was on the episode. Okay. Um, Shirley had a barbecue. And she and R- Ralph was in town, Shirley's husband. And the three of us went to this barbecue. And it was this particular year, um, New Year's Junkanoo was going to be on the 2nd of January because the first fell on a Sunday. And so we went to this barbecue. And after we left, we drove to Fort Mordecai. And we sat in the car and we just told jokes. And we were killing ourselves laughing. And I think it was Joanne who said, you know, when you laugh so much, something's bound to happen. Mary Boy don't make good soup. My mom always That's... said that if you laugh a lot, you can cry. And this was, did you tell him when it was, did you say when, what the date was? This was January. It was, we, were, we were all getting ready to go to Junkanoo. Junkanoo, exactly. It was, it was, it was, New this Year's was actually Junkanoo. January. It was, this was actually January 1st because New Year's Junkanoo was going to be on the 2nd. Yeah. And so the three of us were getting ready to go. And That's so we right. left the fort in our merry state. We were just laughing and carrying on. And we drove the proper way, because I used to always drive the wrong way into Dean's Lane. I used to come in the one way, because their house was right on the corner. Yeah. But we drove the proper way around, up the fort, and coming through Dean's Lane. And as we... Lee needed to stop at home to pick up a jacket. Yep, it was cold. And as we drove up, and we looked towards Dean's Lane, we saw a hearse outside. That's right. And Lee just said, ah, well, Timothy dead. And that was the morning that Timothy Gibson had passed away. That's right. 
Yeah. So needless to say, we dropped Lee off. I took Joanne home and we did not go to Junkanoo. Well, actually, we stayed at the house for a while. We stayed oh, wow, right. in the front in the old homestead because remember the the first house was in front. That, that's where the piano was. That's where we used to rehearse and do all sorts of other musical things there. And we, I remember you and I sitting in the front there while Lee went in the back just to be with the family and whatever have you. We sat there and waited for a while. And then he came back down and we, you know, we hung around long enough for him. And then we left. What then happens is, and this is really how Lee and Joanne got together. Yeah. What happens is that I get accepted to go to the American Academy the of Dramatic Arts, Arts yes. in New York. And Joanne and I are in, we are pit singers for Shirley Hall Bass. We're performing, I think it's Aladdin. And we're at the Dundas, and I let Joanne know that I've just been accepted to the Academy. And so what happens is Joanne and Lee had to actually work together because they wanted to plan a going away party for me. A week of, of entertainment, thank you. Entertainment, thank you. Yes. And so <laughs> that forced them to actually get together and work. And not fuss, yes. On, and not fuss. <laughs> and oh, God. I left, I left and I was in New York and the next thing I know, they moved to Freeport and got married. Well, it didn't exactly happen that way, Philip. <laughs> <laughs> there was some time there. What had happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, at the time, during the time, I was actually in New York. So I don't know what was happening in Nassau. All I know is that I was in my, probably in my second year at the Academy. Yes. And I heard that Lee was playing at the Gulfstream Room. Joanne was living in Freeport. Chris Richardson was in Freeport. Because mm-hmm. he ended up being the best man. Yes. And, <laughs> and, I, was at, and I was working at Scotiabank, again, in Freeport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, we became friends after working so closely on that week, getting, we, Nico, we had planned a whole week of, of activities. Every night we were doing something special because, you know, I, I was dreading the thought that Philip was going away and I was mm-hmm. here stuck being friends with Lee, but I had to bite the bullet because he and I had to plan and pull together to make these things happen. And so in talking and, you know, on the phone, arranging different things and going and checking out different things. We kind of started talking together. And then, you know, after we would come from certain places, planning or, or looking, uh, we would sit in the car and just talk. He'd talk about Barbados and I would talk about my time with Philip and Chamber Singers and, and you know, X, Y, and Z. And so the night Philip left, both extremely sad. And so he said, uh, I was driving. I don't know if he had a snow. He couldn't drive yet, Philip. Uh, I taught him how to drive. I just remember that. (laughs) (laughs) Certain things not to talk. And so uh, he says, well, why don't we go to the drumbeat club and celebrate Philip's, you know, Philip's leaving and, and all of that. And so we went and we sat at the drumbeat club and listened to Penis Taylor, who later employed Lee in the club as his pianist, which is really funny. And so um, he and I went out and afterwards we sat in the car and we talked and talked and talked until almost four o'clock in the morning. Because I remember coming home, just getting a nap and um, the, in, in a short while I had to get up to go to work. I remember that very well. And I, you know, I said to myself, I am so shocked that he is not such a bad person. 
I'm still here. <laughs> That's how the friendship kind of developed. It's Philip's fault, fault, so I blame him totally. And um that's that's how we became friends. And then, of course, I would go around there after chamber singers practice and on different events. And I started to practice with Lee regularly. And he thought my voice was really beautiful. And he had so much experience accompanying other singers in Barbados and all of that. And so he knew a whole lot of soprano repertoire. And that kind of, that attracted me also to him because I got to learn some new music. And so he and I started rehearsing regularly um, after work. I would, you know, I'd come home and check on Jody and the whole nine yards. And then I would go and we would have practice time together. And then sometimes we'd go to a movie or whatever have you. And that's actually how it started. It was the music. It was the friendship first, and then it was the music. And um, the rest is, I guess, history kind of, sort of. You're listening to Kachika, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes at the Dundas Center for the Performing Arts. The premier relationship with you guys has been him accompanying you and and you guys performing together. Yes. And that's been going on for many, many, many years. And we get back to some of the travel now because I know that for a number of years, Franz Hepburn mm-hmm used to plan these um, concerts that sometimes, I think Cleveland Williams was involved as well. Yeah, Cleveland worked for the tourism office and he was in Italy. Talk about that working relationship because it continues to this day yes. from the standpoint of performance and stuff and, and how that works between the two of you. Well, uh, it, the relationship relationship started in 78. That was um, the year after I think you and I met him. And um, because I had practiced so much repertoire with him. And we started to do interesting collaborations with the music, with fusion, which I was interested in because I always, like I said, I never, I really liked the personality and the character of different songs. And I would use, we even created, because he was such a great musician, we even created arrangements of regular songs, like for instance, Brown Girl in the Ring, which was a ring place. It was a song that we used to do. Well, I never did it because I was always fat. They used to laugh at me. So I never got to be the Brown Girl in the Ring (laughs) at school. (laughs) That's not a good time to laugh, Nico, thank you. And so... They wouldn't let me get in the ring. My sister was in the ring, shaking herself. And the best I could do, they would let me stand on the wall while they had their circle, having a ball, just watching them shake. Because I wish I could do it, but I was just too fat and not allowed. And so when Lee, I met Lee and we started to do collaborations, we started to fuse things together. We started to make arrangements of songs that we did in childhood. Some He didn't know those because he grew up in Barbados. When he came home, when he was 18, going on 19. But I, I taught him all of the stuff that, that he knows concerning the Bahamian styles and Bahamian music, folk songs and whatever have you. And we turned brown skin, oh, sorry, brown girl in the ring. We also do brown skin gal, but we turned brown girl in the ring into a coloratura piece. And um, we met Franz Hepburn at Holy Trinity Church where I was a secretary at the time. And Franz's mother was on one of the committees who used to plan balls and Christmas parties and events. And she and I became close. And then we met Franz. And um, he became close with us because he realized that we had a whole lot of VCRs. 
Yeah, the VCR. Oh, the right, VHS VCRs. And we had, Lee had, you know, Lee is a Leontine Price love. And so he would record everything from PBS and then Franz would come around once or once, it used to be once every two weeks, he'd come, I would fix dinner and then dessert was us sitting and we're having dessert and watching everything we recorded for the past week. And we became really, really close. And um, so at the time he was at Ministry of Tourism in the Bahamas. And then uh, he wanted to actually go to tourism in Canada, but there were no openings. So he, he took the opening in London. And at the same time, Cleveland was in Italy at tourism. And so, you know, he wrote back after the first year or so, he says, I'm talking to the district manager here and they want to start putting on Christmas concerts. And um, he says, I'm talking to him about having you and Lee come up. And so I said, you know, as far as I'm concerned, from I was a kid, my mom taught me never believe anything until you see the proof in your hand. And so, of course, uh, I said, oh, that would be great. Uh, you know, I never really liked flying. So I wasn't really looking that much forward to it because it meant eight and a half, nine hours flying to London and about 10 coming back. And then one night he called and he says, uh, the invitation, I'm calling to officially invite you on X, Y, and Z. And then we got the letter. And then he says, okay, go to the tourism office and there's a package and there was, the tickets were there. And I said to Lee, I said, oh my goodness, I think we're going to London. And that is basically how it started. They would have concerts for the people who would be a part of the of tourism and all the events that they did and every relationship they had with businesses and and institutions in London and um, it was like a free concert for them but they treated them to Bahamian artists coming flying up to the concerts and it started in London and then it went to Germany and then it went to Wales and then it went to Paris and you know and then after that, after those trips of really having a wonderful time, it became a Christmas thing. And then it changed from Christmas, going to do the Christmas concerts in several places. Then it became a summer thing where I went over, where Lee and I went over and we did tours. And after the first Christmas, we realized we arranged, um, what was, it was a Christmas carol. Mama Baked the Johnny Cake Christmas Coming. We, mm -hmm. we did that in a very classical way, but it was so wonderful. The people went crazy and they said, oh, your Bahamian music is so lively, it's so beautiful, the harmonies are so beautiful, X, Y, and Z. And then, you know, the next year we started to, I, I actually wrote some Christmas carols and we started to sing some Bahamian songs mixed in with the classical songs and they, they loved it more and more. And I think it was after going, switching from the Christmas concerts to the summer concerts where I got the opportunity to debut lots of original music that was written specific, specifically for my voice. Um, then I added Bahamian music, more classical music, and then we took some of the other music like the Brown Girl in the Ring and the Brown Skin Gal, and we made those into major operatic deals. Franz was not just the person who was organizing these things. Now, didn't Franz arrange and write 
stuff for you as well? Yes, he did. As a matter of fact, he wrote, along with his father, Kemuel Hepburn, who was assistant commissioner of police, I think it was at one point. He wrote some poems. When Franz was a little boy, he wrote these 10 poems. And Franz always wanted to put his father's poems to music. And so he decided, since he had a soprano in residence, as it were, and we were very close, he, he knew my voice because um, we sang together when we first went over to London, we sang together. It was me, him and Cleveland, and we would do different sections of the concert as soloists. And then at the end, we would join together and we would do several numbers as duets and trios. And uh, we called ourselves B4, Lee being the fourth. And mm -hmm. um, so Franz, for the, the summer concert, he says, I'm gonna write some music to my dad's um, poems, and they're going to be called introspection. Well, introspection kind of says everything about it is where really reflective, and it was new music. He actually used to call the house to ask me to sing a certain pattern and sections uh, in my different range, the different areas of my voice. Um, he knew how high I went up, and so he wanted to hear the sound of certain things, and he would call, I'd sing, and then he would go and he would write, and he wrote. Uh, the music, it was, uh, I think it's the longest song cycle in the world because it takes 45 minutes to sing nonstop on stage, which I performed. It was some of the most difficult, interesting, challenging music I've ever sung in my life. Uh, working on it, I taught myself the music because Lee worked at nights um, at Paradise Island as a pianist over there. And so during the time he was off, I would learn the music. And when he came home like 12 midnight, we would go through what I had learned that night. And that was a pattern for us for decades. He'd work in the night, get off 11.30, sometimes 12. And then he would come home and I would either write music and he would have to, I'd sing it for him and he would chord it and we would work together. Like going to bed at three o'clock was a norm, still is actually. Mm -hmm. And and so Franz wrote this stuff and it made me, it took me to another level as a musician because I understood timing and strange leaps like I've never done before in my life. And it took personality to actually perform it. And you know, Philip um, and Nico, it was, it challenged me so much that I actually, I think I grew up, you know, when you cross over and you become an adult in something, you become mature. That song cycle pulled stuff out of me that I'd never done before. And it was it was a technically difficult concert because of, like I said, the first half was 45 minutes and the second half, he had written another two sets of song cycles. One was four words, which I told him to write for me. It was no, why, whatever, and yes. And that is all I said in those four songs. It had to be acted out. And it was so fun. I remember us, I think we were talking about it on the plane ride to Paris or something the year before. And I said, Franz, write me a song cycle. I just want one word titles. And he actually wrote it in a year. And then he had another um, song cycle um, that he wrote. It had five, five um, songs in it. And I debuted those as well on the second half. And that took 35 minutes to sing and then the people wouldn't let me leave the stage and so I had to sing three encores after that one of which was when the road seems rough and everywhere I went in Europe I ended my concerts with praise 
and when the road seems rough. And the people, especially those in London, they always wanted the copy. We'd like to have a copy of the music. And I said, well, I have to find out. I'm telling you, I, I must have talked to your mother about it several times because they wanted a copy. They wanted to know, is it published? Is it so-and-so? And I said, I will have to find out for you. But I said, you know what? I'm not giving them my Bahamian songs because I'm going to go to Europe and sing my Bahamian songs. But people would weep every time. And um, So hold on a second now. Yes. Franz is not the only composer that wrote for you. <laughs> So as you get on to this business, let's talk about two other composers who wrote for you. Okay. And that would be Clement Bethel yes. and Cleophas Adley Jr. Yes. <laughs> now tell us tell us the Clement story, because I think he came to you and said he was writing something for you. And we're talking about Sammy Swain, actually. Yes, the legend of Sammy Swain, yes. A, yes. Oh. And this was this was the second this was the second incarnation because as a chamber singer, we always sang the short version, the ballet version yes. of Sammy Swain. Yes. We sat in the pit and we sang and Kayla would do the lead. And and every once in a while, if we actually did some movement, Lauren Major would be Belinda. Yes. <laughs> and we would do that stuff. But I'm talking about the Sammy Swain that when um, Winston Saunders and Clement and myself got together to change it, and introduce the character of Sister Josetta. Yes. Now, you had a conversation with Clement about that, I think. Okay, uh, just a, a brief second of history. Lynn used to take piano lessons from Clement Bethel, who lived around the corner from where you presently live. And I remember dropping her and picking her up from lessons. And she was so gifted. I wished I could play like her. And Mr. Bethel, he loved teaching her, but he says that Lynn doesn't like to read the music. He, she has the music in front of her, but she is not reading the music. She's playing from air and the whole nine yards. But she played beautifully, and Mummy took her to lessons every, I think it was every week, okay? So that's where Mr. Bethel came into my life. And then after that, I don't remember when we met up again, and um, he was talking about doing the Sammy Swain, and he, at the time when he wrote the part of Sister Josetta, I was actually away in school. Mm -hmm. And Cleophas, Cleophas contacted me because Cleophas was the one that was responsible for writing the, the only operatic aria um, in Sammy Swain, My Child. And mm -hmm. of course, yeah. And so when I spoke to, I cannot remember if I spoke to Mr. Bethel or Cleophas, and I said, please find out if I'm going to have to speak because I don't like to speak on stage. So and I remember, I don't know who told Winston, but um, I said, please make sure that all my parts are being sung. <laughs> well, I recall you and I had that conversation okay. because you said to me, um, you know, I'm not an actress. Yes. <laughs> and I said, I said, I said, let me tell you something, because you and I worked on a song you did called The Telephone. Yes, that's right. <gasps> and, and and you killed that. <laughs> and that was the, that was a huge piece of acting. Yes. All right. Um, because you were doing a solo concert. There was a there was a point when you did a couple of solo concerts. One you did in Winston Saunders' living room. The very first one, it's called Songs in August. I'll never forget it. Right. And that was a fundraiser for you to go off to school. Yes. Correct. But then you did then you did this concert on the Dundas stage. Yes. And I remember you coming to me saying, I have this number, it's called a telephone. <laughs> and I need to do something with it. 
And I remember us working on it, and I, I it was probably the most popular number in the show because mm-hmm. you just you just brought the house down. So when you said to me, "I hope there's no acting," <laughs> I was like, "Listen, don't you worry about it." You and and you couldn't have been more dramatic than Sister Josetta. Yeah. I'm so serious. You know. <laughs> and she didn't say a thing. You could have been Sammy Swain singing his own <laughs> Diss Me Now, but that gave competition, I have to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> In terms of drama. Yeah. The drama was, was, was personal. That wasn't even about the song. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my that was, goodness. That was, that was about the performer. But anyway. All about. That's another, that's another story. I know. Uh, <laughs> How many times did so, we do Sammy Swain filler? Well, outside of the stuff that we used to do with Chamber Singers, mm-hmm. when we did Sammy Swain as the new version, we first did it at 1983 at the Dundas. Yes, right. And then we took it to Le Cabaret, and every Sunday night, yes. we would do the show over there. Yeah. And then we took it to the Bahama Rhythm Theater, Yes. Um, which it had so many different names. And we ended up doing the show there. And that was the time when we did it for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. Yes. And the command performance for Queen Elizabeth II and all the heads of um, the Commonwealth. Yes. You... So they, th- that was it until recently in Shakespeare in Paradise. Yeah. When we did the version that now airs on cable television. And you have been Sister Joe Satter in all of them. I know. But the thing about the one doing for the the queen was you didn't tell them the good stuff that we all got to be, we all got to meet her and she was introduced to us. And um, that was, that was a big honor. And I don't know if you remember them searching our bags, going in and coming out of the hotel. And then her security came in the week before and they were all up in the ceilings that night. They were everywhere in that theater when we performed, it was like, and you remember Sammy would he, Sammy took twice as long to die that night. And <laughs> <laughs> Nico, it was it was such drama. I tell this story every go. I tell you, he, you had competition. I had competition <laughs> because he he was everybody was on high alert that night when it was time for Sister Josetta to come out to make her first appearance with my child or whatever it was. Yeah, that was the first one. I couldn't get in my usual spot. They squeezed together and they were, hey, they <laughs> forgot all about Sister Josetta and making a spot for me to come through to do my dramatic stuff. They wouldn't let me through. I had to go. Another- they were all trying to be seen by the queen. I'm telling you. Everybody wanted to be in her line uh, of sight. It was something <laughs> that night. And then when Sammy took forever to die, I laughed. It was so <laughs> funny. Philip, do you remember that? There were so many stories about that production. What had actually happened that night was we used to have a regular security and somebody had left the door open. Oh my God. And so the British Secret Service had to do a sweep and that they kept us outside uh-huh. because, you know, um, there were a number of people who uh, terrorists would have liked to have killed and in, in within a year one was killed and that was Rajiv Gandhi. Ah. Uh-huh. But Queen Elizabeth was there, Margaret Thatcher was exactly. there, and all these people. And so they had to come in and they, they put us all outside and they had to do a full sweep of the theater just because somebody had left the door open. Yep. I mean, we had to have special passes just to be able to drive exactly. to the hotel. Exactly. We couldn't pass the roundabout. 
we couldn't pass the roundabout because it was blocked off and the security was really, really high. Yeah. I'm telling so, you, even for rehearsals, we had to, our pocketbooks were searched going in and coming out. But did you mention why? For people who don't know the history, why all of the security was so important. Go ahead, Philip. We were at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. It was a mischievous time as well because there was a lot of protests going on with Salimbin. So he actually used to take a boat <laughs> and come in on the boat from around the side because people were outside protesting. You know, the Queen was here. Margaret Thatcher, as I said, was here. Mm -hmm. The big thing that was happening at that time was the meetings on apartheid. They were taking place in Life with Key and they, the Commonwealth heads were trying to persuade the last holdout, who was Margaret Thatcher, to sign um, the Nassau Accord, which ended up being signed, which was the reason why when Mandela was released, the first leader he visited was the Lyndon Pinling. With all of those people being here, and as I said, Rajiv Gandhi, shortly, I, I think within a year of the, of the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, or two years or so, he was assassinated in India. Security was absolutely tight, yeah. you know? I mean, it, 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 was, it was a very tense time. It was interesting for us because, you know, we, we just were there to perform. That's it. You know, we, and we had, um, we had divas for days in that shit. Yeah. Well, I myself was not one of them. Hello, I just sang my part. <laughs> yes, Joanne, I have to say, in, in all of the stories I've heard about that, Sammy Swain, your name did not come up as one of the deepest. Thank you kindly. No. See, I, I'm a gracious person. <laughs> <laughs> you know what happens when you become a diva? It, it Something happens in your mind, and it, it's more of that and less of music, about the music. And I'm always about the music. I'm the servant of the song. So I know my place. Well, you know, I think we can go on talking forever and ever and ever. And there's, there's a certain section of your life that we need to talk about. But I think we're going to save that for October. Okay. And that's going to be the cancer battle. Yes. Because it's not something that not just happened with you. It's also happened with your daughter. Yes. And um, there are a number of other people. And you and I have talked about it. But I think, it, you know, I don't want to just pass over it okay but i think there are a lot of people in the arts who have been who have who have passed on like pandora gibson gomez yeah and, and people like that who 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 also had the battle with cancer and, and our yes. beloved kayla and so you, absolutely and yes kayla. yes yeah. And so, you know, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the artwork that you've done, the book that you've written and all of that kind of stuff. But I don't want to give it short shrift. Okay. And I think we need to do that in another um, episode. And I think Cancer Month is when? Is October, Yes, right? it is. Okay. And October is not that far away. So yeah. I think we will look to that. Otherwise, this will be a three-hour episode. Easily. You know, that's uh, what I was thinking. Oh, I must say, Philip, I must tell everybody mm -hmm. that I am a mother. My daughter is Jody Nakia DeVoe. She is now Knowles, married to Dana Knowles, who is the grandson of the famous Dan Knowles, who owned the bus and touring bus company. And a very good singer. Oh, he's a tenor. He sounds like Pavarotti. And he was also trained by Lee. 
And, and of course, I had my little input in there. And we have sung mm -hmm. several times together. We'll have to talk about the musical where he was Joseph and I was Mary. And we had to be in love on stage. And he was my son-in-law. That's a big, big, <laughs> that's a big story. And, um, uh. and they have three children, David and Daniel, who are twins, like I'm a twin. And the other grandmother, Antoinette Seymour, is also a twin. And Dylan, who is the baby, and they all are musical and they sing and I am so so proud of them. The history goes back because you know we've been we've been the choir singer together, we've been pit singers together. Yes. We've been in shows, we've traveled, we've worked months will go by when we don't have any communication. I know. But <laughs> at 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 any point in time it just picks right back up. Yep. And a lot of people don't even know we're friends, but there yeah. it is. And, and Philip, <laughs> I can count on Philip. I have to say this. It doesn't matter what he's doing. I never know what he's doing. He doesn't know what I'm doing. And if he picks up the phone and I see Philip, that like I never refuse that call. And I can never say no to him because Philip is my family. Like, <laughs> and now I, he brought another person whom I adore this time, uh, Nico, into the family. <laughs> I'm honored to be in this very... Listen, I know I know that this is a very tight and very important circle. So oh, yes. I like to just be included. Thank you. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you, girl, really. All right. Well, uh, on the on those notes, we will uh, <laughs> we we will we will meet again yes. um at another place in time, but it's always a pleasure talking with you, Mr. Vogue. Not taking anything away from calendar, but Joanne and I had this thing about uh long, long conversations that used to happen on the phone. I remember one night I fell asleep. We talked for so long on the phone, Nico. That's a Oh my God. Yeah. We about... I've heard this. I've heard this story. Like you fell asleep and you were like, whoa. I, I know. The next morning I woke up, the phone was on my chest and I called him. He said, <laughs> he didn't even say good morning. He said, yes, you fell asleep. <laughs> anyway, I think he's forgiven me by now for that. Listen, don't worry. He, he has very long memories. Yeah, I know he does. I absolutely know it. <laughs> Joanne. Yes, my darling. Take care. Yeah, you take Thanks care. So much. Oh, my pleasure. I'll talk okay. to you soon. You've been listening to Kachika, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the Dundas Center for the Performing Arts, a production of Ringplay Productions. This has been a conversation with Joanne Callender, Philip A. Burroughs, and Nicolette Bethel. <laughs>